I showed this to you earlier today, but uh, I actually found, I think it's the best Twitter account imaginable. Do you know the one I'm talking about? Yeah, I think I do. So uh, this was earlier today. I don't even remember how I found this. Um, it's one of those things that you discover on Twitter and then it takes a moment or two to process. Like it's so absurd, you think to yourself, is this ironic? Yeah. I'm still not entirely convinced it's not. Oh, man, it's not ironic at okay. all. This is what you have to... Just embrace the darkness, Will. <laughs> so this is an account... I'm not going to read the handle because we're uh, we're too respectable podcasts for right. that. Bernie Sanders sent out his email to supporters saying that's, to engage in respectful discourse. That's right. So this is an account, but it's impossible to talk about the greatest account on Twitter without mentioning that it's called Trevor Supports Actual Democrats. Now, this has changed from this morning when it was called uh, Trevor Supports Democrats. So he's actually radicalized further since in the last 12 hours. (laughs) And um, the cover photo is a picture of a very somber-looking Robert Mueller. The bio reads, I get attacked from both the far right and the far left for my political opinions and musings, man after my own heart. I guess that means I'm doing something right. That bio's also changed from this morning because he had like a list of things that he was wary of, and they included Bernie Sanders, AOC, Glenn Greenwald, Jeffrey Stein from the Washington Post for somehow to make the list, David Sirota. I was disappointed that neither myself nor Jacobin Magazine made this guy's hit list. I love that, the kind of false equivalents in there. You know, Bernie (laughs) Sanders, AOC, David Sirota. (laughs) Yeah, all the the villains. Um, And um, last thing I'll say about this guy is that his pinned tweet is amazing. It's from September 3rd. Okay, 251,000 likes for this tweet. RIP hashtag Nike. Note the hashtag. Due to the upcoming conservative protests, you'll end up in the dustbin of history just like, and then there's a list, Walmart, Starbucks, Dick's Sporting Goods, Kellogg's, Netflix, Amazon, Star Wars, Meryl Streep, Michelle Wolf, the Black Panther franchise, Hamilton. And I just want to say on behalf of Michael and us, welcome to the resistance, Starbucks, Walmart, Amazon, Kellogg's, the rest of them. I respect that he hates AOC. I'm tired of all these people who hate Bernie Sanders but love AOC. I mean, this guy has some intellectual consistency, you know? He only supports actual Democrats, excluding those who, who win prime. You're not an actual Democrat if you, if you beat a centrist like AOC did. That guy, Joe Crowley, he's firmly on the lobbyist track now. Uh, you know, it's cool that he was going to be the next uh, Speaker of the House, though. Anyway, uh, Will wants to say... Will's doing his welcome to Michael and us body language, but I'm actually going to intervene because yeah, uh, I sure. believe we agreed that I was going to introduce this episode. Oh, take it away. Um, yeah, which is something I never get to do. So here's the deal, folks. My feeling was we've we've done a lot of... Uh, we've returned to our roots a few too many times over the past uh, few weeks. How would you define our roots? Well, um, let's just put it this way. When we were talking about what to do this week... You know, I was saying, Will, we've returned to our roots too many times. And then I promptly started pitching, like trying to sell you really hard on the idea of doing a second episode around the movie Slacker Uprising. Those are our roots, you know, the early 2000s. The people know what our roots are, for God's sake. Sure. They listen D- to direct-to-video, shitty, kind of liberalish documentaries. Yeah. 
Thing, um, and things that we might have kind of thought were yeah. cool in the, you know, when we were teenagers or whatever. I actually would like to do an episode revisiting Slacker Uprising 100%. at some point. Uh, I think tonight we just couldn't bring ourselves to actually watch it again because we have watched it a lot of times. I've seen Slacker Uprising four times in We've my We've seen life. it together twice, yeah. I think. Yeah. Longtime listeners will know that Slacker Uprising was the first movie that we talked about on this show. And it is sort of the ur-text of the show. It has, like, if really it is the thing that boils down everything that this show is. And I think it would be interesting to revisit because when we watched that movie last, Bernie Sanders was still in the 2016 primaries. That's how Donald Trump ago. hadn't been elected. It was yeah. it was a whole different, or world. rather, excuse me, installed by uh, foreign powers. Um, so we will eventually get around to doing that again. I think when we were talking about something that we could do for this episode, something that came up was an article that both Luke and I liked that was in the most recent issue of Current Affairs. It's an article called "A Love Letter to a Soulless Business" by Aisling McRae. There's a paragraph in here that really hit me when I read it. Yeah, And I I sent it to Luke. It says, Growing up suburban, there is only a dim sense that there might be a door somewhere in a place that may as well be Narnia, and the key is held by people who aren't you. Culture and music and food from countries you couldn't place on a map. These belong to other people. They are rare commodities that can only be loaned to you on special weekend trips to visit your cool older friend in the city, or seen secondhand through a screen. Suburban kids build their cultural world the way magpies build treasure troves, picking up whatever oddments of interest that happen to be floating around their quiet streets. The George Carlin CDs borrowed from a grumpy uncle. The weird French film caught on late night TV. The taste for banh mi picked up from the town's single, authentically non-Western restaurant. To put it simply, suburban kids take what they can get when they're building their tastes. Sometimes this results in a surprising eclecticism that causes them to start a truly original creative project and become the next media darling. More often, it means we end up bored out of our minds and spending a lot of time at Starbucks. Now, I didn't have a rural upbringing like Luke did, but I did grow up in the suburbs. And, you know, I grew up in a different time than the kids today do. Uh, you know, we had 40 channels on the TV. and Even that sounds so luxurious to me. I had like <laughs> three. And the third one, you know, I would get by actually like holding the antenna with <laughs> one hand and holding up the other hand to get the reception better. We had 40 channels, but two that a kid would watch. Right. Th- that was cable, I guess, in those days, yeah. 40 channels. Cable didn't even reach to where I grew up. There was a video store that I went to once a week and got to rent one movie. You know, there were there were several videos that I owned in my home. And that was, those were the horizons mm-hmm. of your culture yeah. as a kid. You know, discovering anything beyond, you know, the, the kind of monoculture. People talk about the monoculture that we have today. And I think it was actually worse when I was growing up. Well, it was worse because there was no escape from it. I mean, there was no digital escape from it. I mean, I don't know what, uh, you know, you had cable, obviously. I never had cable growing up. And I don't know when you got high-speed internet. But, I mean, for me... not till late. And we had dial-up of, you know, of the kind where, you know, and quite late, where, I mean, you you had to use the phone to do it. Mm -hmm. And it was unbelievably slow. I mean, I remember sitting and watching the, the pixels load. Like from top to bottom, you could see each individual pixel. Mm-hmm. 
loading on a screen on i don't know what what do you look at in the 90s a space jam website or whatever yeah yeah uh, <laughs> which actually was one of the first websites i ever visited and yeah. now it's become a joke but right. i was there on the ground floor <laughs> when i was a kid you know i guess i had that canon of things that were sort of mine cultural artifacts that felt like they were discoveries and that they were secrets i mean when I think I was eight or nine years old, Bravo used to play Monty Python's Flying Circus every afternoon. Yeah. And I would watch that. And that felt like that felt like an incredible discovery. Or, you know, when I was in middle school, high school, Mystery Science Theater 3000 was yeah. like that for me. Uh, did you have a canon of things? Mystery Science Theater, we didn't get it on TV in Canada. You had to go out... And you had to save your allowance and pay $20 for a VHS tape mm-hmm. of one episode. And you'd have that one episode, and I would watch Manos, The Hands of Fate, or whatever it was, yeah. like 20 times. Oh, Memorize yeah. every joke. Well, I, I got, I didn't, I didn't, ha- uh, wasn't into Mystery Science Theater during the VHS era, but I'm during kind of the early DVD era, I remember getting some of those early box sets. Mm-hmm. I mean, watching those episodes so many times that I knew the individual jokes off by heart. Yeah. Like as well as I knew the movies and I knew the if, I knew the if jokes. If you played Mitchell or Manos the Hands of Fate for me without the commentary. Girl in the gold boots. Yeah. I could yeah. Do, I could do Space the Space Mutiny. Yeah. I could do yeah. all those. Yeah. In fact I was actually because some of them were on Netflix the other night. Sometimes they're like a good like nostalgic right before bed kind of thing. Yeah. It's like, a, it's like yeah. a warm warm glass of milk or something mm-hmm. right before bed. Um, and I still know all the jokes. It's great. <laughs> for you, I don't know, were, were there were there particular like political writers? Like, when did you discover Noam Chomsky? Were there things that blew your mind grow- growing yeah, up? Yeah, that that would have been about age, uh, you know, fourteen. Um, I think. I mean, that was I was already in. I would have already been in high school. I p- politics didn't start until I was in high school, mm-hmm. and it, it then it it started. It started very fast. I guess I kind of never looked back from that being a kind of a compulsive kind of obsession. I remember you showed me an essay once you wrote in high school. It was called like Canada, the true North strong and free question mark or something like that. I mean, it really is funny how, uh, uh, you know, and if, if, um, if I wasn't out of beer, we could read, we, you know, there was a couple (laughs) more drinks in, we could, I'm drinking La Croix by the way, because I'm out of beer and Will's, Will still got some wine left because he had the foresight to bring a drink that would last the night. But yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing how uh, how how little things change in a way. I mean, uh, my prose is better, but when I think back to the stuff that I was writing in high school, I mean, I yeah, that essay in particular, I remember it being about you know how Canadian culture was sort of parochial. I don't think I had that word in my arsenal at the time, <laughs> but that's what it was, you know. And I believe the narrative centerpiece was had something to do with the CN Tower and how mm. it's kind of like. Canada having penis envy or something, ah, nice. which which I thought was very risque, and I was fo- and I was fortunate that my creative, my extremely liberal creative writing <laughs> teacher agreed. But I mean, I also remember writing like Chomsky themed essays for philosophy class in grade eleven and things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, I was I was insufferable as a teenager. Another thing that I think it's easy to forget about your childhood and your teenagehood as you get older is how limited your world is. Um, I remember when I was in high school, I used to like to go downtown on the weekends, like by myself. Oh yeah. And I, and I would go see, I would go see like grown up movies and plays and stuff. And I can identify with that too, because as a kid I did come into Toronto. It was a little more of a trek for me. Mm-hmm. You know, it, w- it wasn't just kind of like visiting the more exotic part of kind of the same 
area. It was more like, you know, a journey into the heart of civilization. Yeah. But which, which maybe it was that for you too. I don't know. Well, a little bit. I, well, yeah. I mean, we've talked about how when I was doing Frost Week, it was downtown Toronto, which was the space that I always associated with adulthood. Yeah. It's like I get to go downtown and I get to see a movie like, I don't know, Wong Kar Wai's 2046 or, you know, some art house movie of the day. Grizzly Man or you something were, you like You were that. so highbrow as a teenager. It's amazing. <laughs> um, and then there I was at Frost Week in this same downtown space, like running with an egg on a spoon. <laughs> um, and it felt unfair. See, I, I wow, we already talked about this, but I... Uh, I, I opted to forego all those humili- humiliating rituals yeah. because I was too mature. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, that was just the weekend. And for the most part, uh, during the week, even as a teenager, your mobility is very limited. Mm-hmm. It's You go to school, you go to home, mm-hmm. and then that's it. And then sometimes on the weekend, you go to a friend's basement yeah. and you play video games. Yeah, yeah. This great paragraph from Current Affairs is about uh, how kind of these artifacts were the center of your existence and how you kind of carefully cultivated them. And, and each new one was like a precious thing in which you, inv- you know, invested identity. I mean, that that especially start. Well, I mean, during the rural portion of my you know life up until grade nine, when I moved to moved to Stratford or par- partly moved to Stratford, went to high school uh, in Stratford, you know, there were very few objects because there was no i mean the the woodstock ontario was the closest like quote unquote city you know not not a city by by any means um and stratford which you know also not very big but you know because it has the the stratford festival and things like that it it seemed much more as ridiculous as it to say now it seemed much more kind of cosmopolitan Mm -hmm. and also i guess because i was a teenager there you know i was getting interested in like these things you get into when you're a teenager like you know, rock and roll and and, sure. and and marijuana and things like that. <laughs> it was such a it was such an incredible new universe, like learning about all these bands and buying really shitty like one dollar vinyl records of like the like barely played of like Pink Floyd albums mm. and stuff like that. You know, and I remember I had this uh God, maybe I still have it somewhere. It's not even a real Beatles album. I mean it is the Beatles, but it's like this extremely weird compilation and it has like the worst Beatles B sides on it, plus like I don't know, Yellow Submarine. It's like the it's like this really generic and kind of bad Beatles record, and it was secondhand, and I just played it like a gazillion times, and all of that was was new to me, and I came to associate it with like I think everybody feels some kind of novelty, you know, has set in during adolescence and a kind of new sense of freedom that didn't exist before, but. For me, maybe because like I, I went from like rural to, I don't know, somewhere where, you know, there was like a town where mm. people, I don't know, were, were into music and were, yeah. into, were into things. Uh, it was, you know, that much more exciting for me. I, I kind of felt that way when I went to university. When I was in high school, all these, all these sorts of cultural objects that I was interested in definitely felt like they were just sort of my thing. I remember one time... Uh, hanging out with my friends and saying, oh, I'm going to go to this this thing that's downtown, um, this guy who has a movie theater in his house on Bathurst. Hmm, I, wonder who that I, wonder, I wonder who that was. <laughs> now, the, the owner of this movie theater in his house has since been, uh, I guess, a bit disgraced, <laughs> to say the least. But the thing is, the idea of a guy downtown who has a theater in his house and he's showing a Marx Brothers movie that night... If that doesn't appeal to you, I don't know what to say to you. My high school friends looked at me aghast and mm. appalled. 
Um, well, I mean, you perhaps you, rightly so you, in retrospect. You, know, you, you were like you were like Odysseus setting yeah. off into you know. Yeah. <laughs> Although, actually, also what you were what you were saying uh, just now reminded me that like all these iconic things, like the Beatles, like they seem so sort of cliche now, but mm. you are genuinely discovering them as a teenager. There's a whole canon of movies that I sort of think of as the basement of my high school home yeah. movies. Like, I don't know, The Shining, mm. A Clockwork Orange, Boogie Nights. All yeah. these movies are just like mm. stuff I saw at 17. Mm. And maybe two years ago, I finally got around to watching Train Spotting, which I had never seen before. Yeah. And while watching it, I thought, this feels like something I would yeah. have seen in that basement. It's great, great fun, though. It is fun, but it I, is wish, something I, I wish I saw watched. it at 17. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I mean, the best stuff like that, you know, kind of holds up. And maybe you don't mm. listen to it. Maybe you're not immersed in it all the time as an adult. But every couple of years, you go back to it and you think, this is great. Yeah. But then again, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, you got to cut off the dead wood. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't hold up. So nostalgia was on our minds this week. And we wanted to talk about movies that that sort of reminded us of this feeling of being teenagers. Mm -hmm. And the movies that came to mind were Richard Linklater's Slacker and Dazed and Confused. Uh, this was your idea. Uh, as yeah. always, I needed a little bit of selling on it. Well, you know, I've been thinking about it would be great to do Slacker for a long time because mm. there is a, an easy, if albeit kind of superficial, in for Michael and us with Slacker because, you know, it's set during, I guess it's the 92, like, mm. primary season. You know, right. you see you see kind of the paraphernalia of that in the background. You see, like, where Ron Paul for president when he's running on, like, the libertarian mm. ticket. And and because it's it is kind of a an end of history film, but then you know I I found out recently that you hadn't seen Dazed and Confused, and that, I was keen to revisit probably it. Dazed and Confused. I want to say maybe one of my top five like most famous movies, most that, famous movies that I haven't a guy, seen. A guy a guy who was going to see Wong Kar Wai movies in high school, and he never got around to Dazed and Confused. Yeah, I'm sorry. What can I say? Mm -hmm. You know. Um, but then you know, a decade later, you started an irony Michael Moore podcast with your mm -hmm. friend who would go on to become a left-wing polemicist. And then somehow that weird combination of events allowed you to finally watch Days to Confused as God intended. I like to think I have a long life ahead of me and I would have eventually <laughs> got to it. I, I hope but, so. But here we are. But I mean, the other thing is, I mean, I really think, you know, this podcast is a, is a constant kind of self-flagellation of just... Having to don these, you know, toxic waste disposal suits yeah. uh, to watch, you know, films about... Films that try to make Cory Booker seem cool, you know, <laughs> things like that. And we, we wanted to see some movies that were like, that we liked and that uh -huh. were real movies. I also think, you know, we have to try to be charitable to, you know, our listeners who are an incredibly gracious bunch of people who have very generously for several years now come on this journey with us through these, <laughs> these mostly awful uh, movies and uh, I feel like, you know, perhaps they've suffered enough. And, and it's, it's a long way to the Iowa caucuses. I think all of us could mm -hmm. do with a, a timeout. Just talking about, you know, a time in our lives where we were happy. 
You know, something that we've learned on this long journey of ours is that everything is political, whether it's Tommy Wiseau, whether it's Rat Race. And that's why, folks, we can do an episode on anything we want without having to justify it. Uh, and Richard Linkletter, I think more even than certain names that I've mentioned, is is political. I don't know if he would consider himself political. He, he has kind of a confused, uh, vaguely leftish, but not quite politics He's very interested in sort of conspiracy culture and he's interested in kind of a new agey like, oh man, what's it all about uh, philosophizing? He's very, he's very kind of uh, existential in a way. He's very interested in how uh, we're all kind of victims of time passing. You know, how, how life is really just a kind of a continuous present that you have to grab a hold of because... There kind of is no past and no future, mm-hmm. and you're always just kind of right there. I think you see that in the, you know, the before trilogy and in Boyhood also, and, oh, very much so, and in and in these two films that we watched. He's very interested in asking big questions. I don't think he's that interested in the answers. The act of asking questions is enough for him. I, I wouldn't really call him political. I mean, to me, one of the the annoying fallacies of our time actually is kind of that everything is political. I agree with the phrase everything is political in the kind of grad school sense. I disagree with it in the sense of the like, I I think that what's irritating to me is this kind of didactic attitude that increasingly we're all supposed to have towards anything that we consume, Mm. where, you know, the act of kind of consuming things, first of all, we're all consuming things in public because, um, because everything is branding now. And because we're consuming them in public, we kind of have to justify why we're watching them, why they're good in some way, why they add to the collective mm. human good. And I don't think that that's yeah. like a healthy or constructive attitude. And have. also Donald Trump is the president now. So we have to we have to be very concerned that our consumer choices aren't like upholding <laughs> the hideous reality that has elected Donald Trump <laughs> as president. Right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I don't I don't really like and I mean, that's why this podcast, you know, I don't think either of us has ever wanted to become like Luke and Will watch any movie they feel like, and then they they superimpose some kind of like political analysis onto it. But having said that, for me, the framework that we apply in our podcast is not that you know everything is politics. Um, everything might be political, but not everything is politics. Only yeah. only only politics is politics. Um, but but cultural products. I think they play at best a very minimal role unless they're very important in actually changing people's attitudes for anything. They don't foment rebellion or or, or transform society. I have a, a one exception, and it's a little movie called Birth of a Nation, <laughs> which uh, revived the KKK. <laughs> Since then, no movie has ever changed anything. Uh, you know, cultural products obviously reflect culture, and mm-hmm. they reflect... I think better than anything, you know, films like the ones we watched, you know, channel an idealized versions of particular times in ways that make them very useful for re-entering those times and, and, and talking about, you know, I guess in essence, what their politics were either in a kind of personal sense, what, what the time, what, what they mean to us or, or, you know, what they meant to the people at the time. So we teased this a bit last week. We talked a bit about Slacker last week, but I can't think of another movie that better communicates that kind of ambient dissatisfaction of the nineties, that feeling of, you know, again, it's the end of history. Mm. This is apparently the best of all possible. Right, we, we should be paying Francis Fukuyama royalties at this point for the amount of times we refer to that. We probably refer to him more than we do Michael Moore at this point. <laughs> Friend of the show. 
this is supposed to be the best world, so why are we unhappy? Why is, why is everything so gray and so dull? Why are these landscapes surrounding us so ugly mm-hmm. when we're told that this is the like these are the best landscapes we can hope for? Mm-hmm. And we know that the answer isn't left politics because the Berlin, it doesn't exist. The Berlin yeah. Wall fell. Yeah, uh, socialism and communism. The whole, the whole, the whole socialism, idea. which is communism, <laughs> right. failed. <laughs> right, right. But I mean, the '90s were such a bleak time, right? It's not just that the utopianisms of kind of the Soviet Union or whatever were gone. It's that even Western European social democracy was too utopian. <laughs> yeah. Even even just the idea of having like a welfare state was was too radical mm-hmm. um and so we didn't we didn't have that anymore that's how radically and militantly boring the 1990s were mm-hmm. uh, you anyway, know i i think a lot about the 1990s i'm trying to write a piece right now about how you can explain the deficient not to get political here uh you can do you can explain the deficiencies of liberal politics in the present day largely on the fact that they're they're still rooted in the 1990s i think mm. people don't understand how weirdly utopian this boring politics was all the youths in slacker who are just trying to navigate this is it houston you know or you know fort worth or something this you know texan kind of exurban hellscape they're really bored but meanwhile the people running society are like this is actually the most exciting thing ever Mm -hmm. uh actually a politics that just seeks to kind of stimulate empty consumption in perpetuity is actually the most exciting thing ever. And so the 90s, whether we like it or not, are kind of still with us. And when I think of Richard Linklater, to me, he is a consummately, you know, 1990s figure. And, you know, Dazed and Confused, so Slacker is actually set during the 90s. Dazed and Confused is a film of the 90s, but it's set in 1976, which makes it kind of an interesting product because it's kind of very much Linklater channeling memories of his youth of the 1970s, but in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. So this is what nostalgia looked like in the early 1990s. Mm-hmm. Because I think Linklater himself, you know, one of my readings of the movie is that you know he himself is, you know, is acutely aware of how boring the 90s are. And a film like this is partly his attempt to excavate his own childhood and discover like this this lost kind of elan even though these movies are about these kind of boring hellscapes they're very pleasant oh yeah you know i I find this i find both of them utterly charming and they remind me of something of my childhood Mm -hmm. that vast amount of kind of empty time you had as a kid oh yeah slacker really evokes that feeling of like a hot summer day with nothing to do you can almost feel the humidity in it you don't have a phone to look at there's no internet life is just this eternal quest to stave off boredom and occasionally find some excitement but but mostly you're just bored but but at the same time there's a radical freedom to that boredom because there's no obligation there's no nothing and dazed and confused is kind of a more social or about friends hanging out on Mm. the last day of school i think dazed and confused is kind of if you take the last scene of slacker which is the thesis of the movie right Mm. where um they just drive out into the wilderness and they they have nothing to turn to but just kind of their adolescent sense of fun and they just i don't know they mm-hmm. they go swimming in a you know river or something mm-hmm. dazing fuse is kind of like that spirit but across mm-hmm. an entire movie link letter is obviously disturbed by the world that surrounds him by this bleak world where inexplicable forces are dictating and shaping the ways we live our lives and th- there's no way to protest them there's no way to challenge them 
But he seems to find some redemption in the fact that, well, we can have a good time with our friends and we can crack open some brewskis and we can drive around and have some fun. So Dazed and Confused kind of centers around various characters and and little social groupings. And uh, the basic divide is between the seniors and the juniors. And the seniors are kind of trying to perform various hazing rituals on the juniors. And the juniors are kind of torn by trying to avoid these humiliations and also thinking the seniors are really cool and being very excited because, you know, they've just graduated from junior high and they get to be, you know, freshmen. They're high schoolers now. They're they're, high, they're, they're, they're old and They're cool. proper adults. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so there's a scene where the three nerds, including the uh, Adam Goldberg character... One of many future stars in the film. Yeah, the film has, has a lot of people who become famous later, some of whom are almost unrecognizable in this. But there's a scene where, where the nerds are kind of driving a car and one of them says... You know, but that's valid, because if we're all going to die anyway, shouldn't we be enjoying ourselves now? You know, I'd like to quit thinking of the present, like, right now as some minor insignificant preamble to something else. Mm. And to me, that kind of... If Link, if Richard Linklater has a philosophy, it's something like that. Mm-hmm. I think it captures something that is uh, acutely true about adolescence, which is that on some level, you know that none of this actually matters. You know that it is a preamble, and on the other hand... On some other, like, I think almost unspoken level, you know that you're never going to have this level of freedom again. What lies ahead of you inevitably is obligation and work. I mean, I, I guess I agree with that, but also the idea of being an adult as a child was just so abstract to me. I just kind of thought childhood would never end. Uh, see, for me, I couldn't wait for it to begin, in a way. But... I would say in high school, I started to feel that way. Mm-hmm. Like, around grade 10, I was kind of like, okay, let's mm-hmm. uh, let's speed this up a little bit. But I guess what was kind of confusing at all is, like, you know, like you said a moment ago, in, you know, in high school, you're dumb enough to think that you actually are an adult already yeah. in some way. <laughs> yeah. Um, but th- this film, there were so many little moments that, that spoke to my own experience of high school, even though... You know, obviously, I didn't grow up in Texas in the 70s, as Richard Linklater did, but he he gets adolescence. Uh, you know, he gets how he gets all the dumb conversations that you have that especially like young men have the dumb conversations they have about girls, mm-hmm. the dumb bravado that is a very poor facade over their deep insecurity. He gets those things. He captures the business of being moderately to extremely irresponsible and having no sense of consequences. Mm-hmm. You know, the scene where they climb the, the tower and one of them's just casually saying like, oh yeah, last year they banned this because some kid fell off and like was banging his head all the way down or something. Mm-hmm. There are no consequences to any of this because when you're that age, you're not thinking in those terms. I also like the way he deals with sex. Mm-hmm. Like, sex is this very abstract thing. It's something that everybody is sort of afraid of. Everyone's kind of thinking about it, but also no one really understands it. There's that scene at the dance, which is kind of a lame dance well, with a lot of a lot of younger it's teenagers. A, it's, a, it's, a, it's a junior high dance, mm-hmm. and two of the younger characters go to retrieve their buddy. There's a kind of front part of the dance in the atrium where it, it looked exactly like one of my kind of grade seven dances where people are dancing, but they're barely looking at each other. In some cases, they're barely touching each other. There's enough other. room for Jesus between them. <laughs> right, yeah. right. And then and then the, the two characters go into like the back room, which has, you know, chill lighting. And this is where the <laughs> yeah. kids who I guess are... Uh, a little more mature you know they're mature enough to kind of just lightly kiss or whatever Mm -hmm. um they're the cool kids Mm -hmm. and then go they go and get their buddy because they 
they've decided that now we're freshmen, like we're actually too cool even for this. There's also the Matthew McConaughey character. <laughs> Who you loved. I thought he was great, yeah. <laughs> What's his famous line in the movie? Oh, I, oh love, the- I love high schoolers. I get older, but they stay the same age. <laughs> his, his character is so douchey, and yet he is not by any means the douchiest character in the movie. Linklater is very good at creating these various kind of douchey alpha male characters while also separating the ones who are genuinely cruel and douchey Mm. from the ones who are just kind of putting it on and are fundamentally well-intentioned. So one thing that I think is really funny is how Ben Affleck is really present in like the first kind of one and a half acts of the movie. Mm. And he's driving around with a paddle trying to haze the younger boys and he's genuinely malicious and he's mean like yeah. he he actually he just he just gets off on it whereas the other guys really are doing it as kind of an initiation all in good fun yeah and like know. within a few minutes they're like hey do you want to come you know we're driving around later do you want to come and hang out with us um and the ben affleck character they humiliate him by a bunch of the boys like dump I don't know, some slime on him or something. Mm. And then they sort of parkour their way out of there. And he's so humiliated that he breaks his bat and just drives away, never seen again for the rest Mm. of the movie, which is awesome. Mm. Whereas, you know, McConaughey sort of has the same swagger, but I I don't think we see him do anything that's, you know, cruel. Mm. Oh, yeah, you you know me. I've been uh, keeping up with my uh, JFK assassination theories, you know. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know. You know, you're reading one of the great books on the the subject. It's great. Rush of Judgment, you know, has all that testimony, you know, from uh, all the witnesses who were never called before the Warren Commission. You know, like Mrs. Aquila Clemens, who was that maid who lived on Patton Street, who saw the Tippett shooting, you know, and it wasn't wasn't Oswald that did it. Of course, you know it was Jack Ruby. Oh, really? Oh, I yes. I didn't realize that. Yeah. This, this is also the book that's got the testimony of Sam Holland, you know, the, the uh, Prince of the Puff of Smoke. Huh. Yeah, he was up there on the uh, overpass over Dealey Plaza, you know, and he was able to just see everything, you know. Something I, I want to address about Slacker is the conspiracy culture in the movie. You know, we talked about it a little bit last week. Mm-hmm. It's something that comes up a lot in Richard Linklater's movies. And it was something that really peaked in relevance in the 90s. You know, we've talked about conspiracy culture a mm. lot. On, well, we did the, the Alex Jones Bohemian Grove episode. And Alex a, Jones, of course, featured in Waking Life. Yeah, a, a uh, former acquaintance of Richard Lankletter. I guess I would just sort of reiterate something we said before, which is that it's something that really flourished in a time when there was this kind of ambient dissatisfaction, but left politics was also at a nadir in America. So, so it was kind of... Well, okay, well, if if we can't have kind of a leftist or a Marxist analysis of this, then, well, I don't know, is it UFOs? Well, if if there's no critique that can be made that's political, you got to do divination. That's all that's all that's available to you. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think conspiracy culture flourished in that time. It's also why. You know, again, I know we we promised to kind of abstain from from this kind of stuff for this episode, but you know that's why it's kind of flourishing now among certain political constituencies, especially sort of older ones online. The sort of MAGA Teacot and Unite Blue sensibilities of like mm-hmm. older cable news viewers who've, whose brains have been addled by either MSNBC or Fox, where you know they they can't explain the world anymore, and so all they've got is conspiracy, and that can be. Putin or George Soros or, you know, pick your poison. Or I guess there's that whole QAnon world. I mean, that is genuinely weird. Where it's like, okay, well, our our guy's in. Donald's in. Why isn't everything better now? That's right. But I mean, those people's brains are so messed up that, like, like, their conspiracy theories are actually trying to make sinister figures 
out of these, you know, centrist liberals like Hillary Clinton. Like, you don't need to make a conspiracy yeah. out of that. Like, it's just everything that's sinister about those people is just mm-hmm. right there in your face. Yeah. And yet they're still, you know, they're still kind of trying to, like, you know, throwing chicken entrails on a sundial yeah. and seeing where they point. Jeffrey Epstein is right there. <laughs> Why do you need to create Pizzagate? <laughs> and I mean, you also see it right in this culture of some random GIF or or video clip where you can extrapolate a whole narrative about, it. you know, those things with Hillary Clinton where, you know, a sort of slightly edited video where she's just doing a double take, she's reacting to somebody, mm-hmm. and they turn that into a whole thing about how she's like secretly... Mm-hmm has seizures or something like that or you know you can make a whole kind of secular theology over two days about how nancy pelosi is you know epically resisting trump by sardonically applauding him even when nancy pelosi herself is coming out and saying no i'm literally just applauding i thought i i agreed with the hard right republican president i wanted to register my agreement the most successful conspiracy of the last 10 years or so was the birther conspiracy right which is also the a product of a particularly angry racist constituency of fox news viewing white people who just their their identities fundamentally could not grapple you know with the idea of a black president mm-hmm. and so they had to their idea of America couldn't concede that. So they had to invent some reason how this actually wasn't a product of America. It was mm-hmm. a product of like rural Kenya or something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the 90s, uh, I think you had this to an even greater extent because there was no, you know, there were no avenues for dissent, really. You know, unless you're going to become some kind of hardcore religious zealot. All there was was kind of doing like weird alchemy. And, you know, mm-hmm. one of my favorite characters in Slacker is the guy who in some ways is sort of a proto- He's like a proto Alex Jones, but also mixed with the director of of the of Spin from last week's episode. Yeah, where he just hangs out and he he's got a million TVs set up and he just intercepts different signals and kind of films them. And then he he's watching them all at once. He's a he's a proto extremely online guy. Like yeah. before online exists, he's right there mm-hmm. and his brain has already been broken by watching all the monitors. Incidentally, did you see this article today about, uh, you know how there's people professionally employed by Facebook to be the mods, right? I don't know if I did know that. Well, so, you know, anytime you submit a complaint to Facebook or oh, something, okay, there's yeah. people who's, who, who have to, like, actually Arbitrate go. Arbitrate it. Right, yeah. right. So there's this article about how doing this job is completely destroying people's brains. People, <laughs> people quit the job. I think there's several interviewed in the article and they say, you know, there's people who are like, you know, I started questioning, you know, the details around the Holocaust from like reading so many crazy memes or I started I started wondering if the US government was behind 9-11 think of some of the things you probably see doing that job like yeah you probably see like child porn I I mean mean, yeah I mean the the cesspools of the internet that it becomes your job to curate but so that like that slacker character is like somebody who's doing that voluntarily before the internet even exists and I love that because that's what like radical cultural dissent was in the 1990s one last thing I want to say about Dazed and Confused is uh i think the soundtrack is a really important part of the movie most of this is not music that i would listen to outside of the context of thinking about this film not a member of the kiss army <laughs> do kisses you know this is a digression do kisses fans know that they're a novelty band or oh, not oh man i've never been able to figure out i had a teacher in high school i, I was just gonna say i had a teacher in high school <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> he was my my history teacher, and his his favorite band was Kiss. His favorite show was Two and a Half Men, mm-hmm. and his favorite movie was Forrest Gump. Oh man, what we a, should invite him on the pod. He sounds cool. Grand Slam. Just <laughs> I also had a teacher in, in high school. He was the bass player in what was fondly or perhaps a little derisively referred to as the teacher band at my first high school. He was the bass player. He would go up on stage with his, you know, uh, his his Kiss t-shirt, playing the bass, and they would just do Kiss covers. And even at the time, I, I mean, they had this, like, swagger to them, but I could not figure out if it was ironic or not. I'm still not to this day sure. Okay, we'll get back to the movie in a sec, but <laughs> listen to that Kiss song in the movie. I was kind of, I was listening to it. It's, it's their famous song. Uh, what the fuck was it? I want to rock and oh, roll. Yeah, that that all song, night. that famous song, and party every day. The only Kiss song I could name <laughs> with a gun to my head, and I couldn't even name it just now. <laughs> and I was listening to that, and I was thinking, you know, it's kind of catchy. And then I started thinking, well, you know, they put on makeup, and you know, they they stick their tongues out, and uh, there's you know, like fire. And yeah, stuff. there's showmanship there. I bet they put on a pretty fun show. Yeah, uh, and it's like you know. A lot of rock music is dumb, so you know <laughs> who am I to judge? Yeah, at, at least at least Kiss kind of like owns the fact that they're mercenary pieces of shit. <laughs> okay, I mean, G- Gene Simmons like one of the worst people he's ever lived, <laughs> and yet he he owns it. Unlike a lot of people. Apologies to any Kiss fans listening. Yeah, um, I mean, I, what I'm trying I, to say is that I respect Kiss. I genuinely don't understand Kiss, but I guess to just pivot back to what I wanted to say mm-hmm. about the soundtrack. The songs all make sense and are actually very cool in the context of the movie. Yeah. And and the movie is so earnest. It's leaning so hard into this culture of the mid-70s in the, you know, in certain parts of the American South where, you know, if you're of a certain background, you know, this is what your culture is. And it is so cool. It is so much fun. There's a swagger to it. And the movie is the perfect delivery system for all that. And I found it so easy to relate to this kind of youth culture of three decades prior to, you know, my own equivalent. Although, you know, I guess when I was a teenager, I mean, I I was never into like this wing of classic rock, but I love, you know, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, things like that. So it's not not a huge Mm -hmm. uh, step to make. Anyways, amid the the chaos of the present, it was it's nice to immerse ourselves in some uh, some nostalgia, kind of personal and cultural for a change. Look forward to watching a horrible soul destroying movie again pretty soon. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we will. So, Luke, uh, did you have Oscar fever this week? <laughs> yeah, this was... Uh, yeah, this, by the way, this is part two of the episode. It's uh, We're, we're just going to be discussing uh, the Oscars. Well, and who were who the winners and losers? Who's in? Who's out? Yeah. Uh, what what were, were our favorite moments? What were the best, who were the best dressed? The best fashions. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't watch it, did you? you, you of course, of course uh, you of watched course it. Of course I watched it. I always watched it. Uh, I, my girlfriend and I went to the Bloor Hot Dog Cinema, and we watched it there. Really? You watched it live? You went to an actual event? We watched to a movie. That's commitment. We, we went to a movie theater. And, and let me tell you, we were in the balcony. We got there early. Mm-hmm. And on the right... You had your, you had your theater glasses. And... On, on the right-hand side of the balcony, at the, at the very front, there are these two seats that are just together mm-hmm. in their own row. And we sat in those seats. It was great. It was like having a private booth. And so if I, I recommend <laughs> watching the Oscars... I was wondering where that story was going to go. It's I recommend <laughs> watching the Oscars in a private booth with your girlfriend. Uh-huh. It's fun. It's nice. 
the the show was long and kind of boring, but well, you know, I had a good time. As I understand, um, as I understand from your live show that you did from your uh, for your other podcast this weekend, which that's like an episode of that people can listen to, right? Yeah, it's on our Patreon. Okay, it was fun, folks. It was Will did a did a live show where uh, everyone from the Will Sloan podcast universe was there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, except for many of you, the listeners, who some of some of you have indicated that if we did a Michael and Us live show, you'd come. So, well, I think that like as we've shown last weekend, this can work. <laughs> so let, let's do it sometime. We'll, we'll, we'll try it sometime, although it, it'll be difficult for, for some of the American listeners to make it. But uh, anyway, we'll talk about that some more. And so we might we might have something in Toronto in the future. But as I learned from your, your live show, you know, after your, uh, your extended uh, soliloquy about Bruce Lee imitators, which uh, was very informative, you were talking about the Oscars and how they... So they've cut a bunch of categories or something. There's like a like a faux populist streak to the Oscars now where they're kind of steering it away from heady cinema stuff. The previous Oscars was the lowest rated in history. Who hosted it? Jimmy Kimmel, I believe. Great, sure. Uh, One of the Jimmys. So they were trying to figure out ways that they could kind of get it back on track. So first they introduced, let's have a best popular film Oscar. Anyway, they got rid of that category. Then they were like, well, let's put a couple of categories during the commercials. And we'll make the show shorter. And the categories they were going to put during the commercials were categories that Black Panther wasn't nominated for. Right. And Black Panther is a movie that was released by Disney, which also owns ABC. These are the sorts of decisions that come into play. <laughs> they got rid of the host, which it turns out was fine. So how did it work? There was, there was just no host. They just had categories. And it was great. And they have, just have different people. Yeah, yeah people, people presented them. Uh, the winner this year was Green Book, which I haven't seen. Uh, the other big winner was Bohemian Rhapsody, directed by the rapist Brian Singer. Right. What I like about it is that it goes <laughs> to show that the arc of history does not bend towards progress. <laughs> and I think that this is a very important lesson that people need to learn. Because as many have pointed out, Spike Lee lost again this year. He mm. won screenplay, but his movie was beaten by a movie very similar to Driving Miss Daisy. All right. After he famously, do the right thing, yeah. famously lost to Driving Miss Daisy. So, again, there is no progress. This whole conversation really reflects our ultimately kind of divergent attitudes towards cultural consumption. Because I, see, I look at all this and then I'm just like, well, I'm not going to watch this because it sucks. Yeah. Right. Like, because there's no, even just when you're, when you're making decisions based on this whole idea of a creating a separate category. I mean, I know they didn't do it, but best popular film as distinct from best picture. It's like, it's disgusting. It's just sort of even, that's just sort of conceding that this is like, all of this is a business decision. You're kind of consecrating a kind of a cultural elitism with that move, you know? Uh, it's kind of like, well, there are these things that film people like, which I don't know, are just I don't know, boring, you know, Merchant Ivory movies or whatever. And then, <laughs> and then, and then there are these, you know, these are the smart movies. And then there's these things which the unwashed masses like that, you know, Marvel makes or whatever. And it's like, don't do that. Like, if this is worth anything, it's as kind of a popular medium where there's where everybody can kind of participate. And it's you know, it's not that. It's not. It's not anything. All the all the kind of faux politics of it ultimately just seem to come down. Every every time I hear about the Oscars in retrospect, it always just sounds like four hours of kind of Hollywood fart sniffing, and I have no interest in subjecting myself to that. Yeah. And and you have not missed a single Oscars since, like, what, 1995 or something? I haven't missed a second of it. Spe- speaking of nostalgia, I do have a funny memory of uh, 
one of our many memories of the varsity office where during a long production night so there's a classic time where for some reason there were like seven straight episodes of home improvement on and we just kept watching it and it kind of became this thing of how many first of all how many more episodes can they just run consecutively yeah. <laughs> um, this is not on demand this is not on netflix this was just on cable tv that we had in the office mm. but then you know the second part of being if there is another episode, can we bring ourselves to watch it? And the answer, you know, indubitably was yes. When it ended, I remember being disappointed. Yeah, it was too bad. But there was another memory I had where during one of the magazine production nights, it was that Oscars were Anne Hathaway and an extremely stoned James Franco were hosting. Yes. And they were just the worst hosts ever. It was a it was a train wreck. Yeah, I spent the whole thing in the other room watching the Oscars. Yeah. I don't know. I had a really good time watching the Oscars this year. There was something about the fact it was so disgusting. Can you explain to me, responding to what I said, because I genuinely... We, we spent a lot of time talking I, about this I'll, stuff. I'll, I'll tell and you. I'll tell and you And I why. genuinely still don't understand what, why, you, why you do I'll this. I'll tell you, because I deeply care about the art of cinema. I, I love the art of cinema. It's, it's the most important thing to me. And it's this annual desecration of it. <laughs> And that's that's fascinating. Like this year, it's like the Super Bowl of dumping on the thing that you like. Yeah, and, and that's very and it is ostensibly like yeah the highest celebration like, like the, of like it. Like the way it's sold is this is the time that everyone gets together and talks about the thing I like. Right. And at the Oscars this year, Paul Schrader got nominated for the first time ever. He has never been nominated for an Oscar. He wrote Taxi Driver. He wrote Raging Bull. What, what movie was nominated? First Reformed. Oh, great, which I saw recently. Yeah, great, it's, great it's film. an incredible film. Yeah, wonderful. He lost in screenplay to Green Book. Mm -hmm. And Green Book is written by this guy called Velalengo. I don't know. I forget what his name is. And he is kind of like the Frank D'Angelo of L.A. <laughs> like he's a notorious just kind of loser. Right after 9-11, he did an album, you know, of Christmas songs in memory of 9-11. He's that kind of guy. Right. And he beat Schrader. That's why I watch the Oscars, you know, for, for that kind of moment. I still don't think I fully understand. You'll never understand it. it. it you'll, you'll never understand. Don't even try. Why do you watch the primaries, Luke? Well, because, I mean, they suck, but they ultimately, you know, matter. And, and you know, hopefully something good can come out of them. I mean, maybe not, but... You know what? I think I kind of feel the same way. Mm -hmm. Because you're kind of sold... One of the things that you're sold on the Oscars is... Well, okay, you hate the Oscars, they're bad, but this is why good movies get made. This is why quality films get made. This is the only reason the studios are in business making quality movies, because maybe they'll get nominated for an Oscar. So that is why the Oscars sort of matter. And that thesis gets harder and harder to sustain every year. <laughs> so what you're saying is watching the Oscars are kind of like, it's it's like trying to sustain you know hope when your your vehicles for... You know, for expressing your dissatisfaction with society, or like Al Gore and Howard Dean, and they just get worse every single yeah. year. Yeah. To the point where, you know, it's 2015, 2016, and your brain is just broken. And, you know, <laughs> and you and you make your cover photo, you know, a picture of like, you know, George Bush or something. <laughs> and then and then you change your handle to like, you know, resistance dad or whatever. Yeah. Um, that's so you are actually Underneath it all, you're just, in spite of everything we've said on this episode and all the other episodes, you're just a resistance guy, is what you're saying. You're the you're a cinema resistance guy. I'm still with her. <laughs> now watch this drive.
Oh